Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 204. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the highly renowned Vermont author, Judge Dean Pinellas. Dean. Hi, Barney. Nice to be with you. How you doing? Doing great. Excellent. This is a... Uh, so, so, Dean, here we are as, as of this recording. It is the beginning of September... Nights are kind of getting a little bit cooler, and this is the perfect time of year. If somebody wants to settle in and read a good book, they can always pick up Rootstock Publishing, A Judge's Odyssey, which just came out at the end of this past July, correct? That's correct, July 19th, and it's also available uh, generally. Uh, most bookstores are carrying it. It's available on Amazon, available at uh, Bear Pond Books and Stowe. If anyone's interested, it's uh, pretty easy to get a hold of. You just did a reading over at Bear Pond Books in Stowe, correct? Well, I didn't do a reading. I did a signing okay. uh, that was right. pretty well attended. Uh, that was a couple of weeks ago. That was fun. That was my first book signing. Never done that before. Didn't know what to expect, but uh, it was <laughs> it was pretty well received. How was that? How was that doing a book signing in you know kind of like a Vermont tourist town like that? Well, again, you know, I'd never done this before. This is the first book I've written. Uh, the uh, local bookstore uh, was enthusiastic about having me do a signing. So one Saturday, a couple of weeks ago, I set up shop in the store. Uh, uh, they had a copy of the book prominently displayed. So anyone coming into the store could, uh, could look at it and, uh, and see that I was there to sign copies. And uh, people wandered in, a lot of friends, a lot of people I hadn't seen for a while, uh, it was kind of a, you know, a get-together event and uh, actually sold a few books, signed a few books. And it was a lot of fun. So so talk to us a bit about, Dean, You, this is your memoir. It's it's a pretty thick book. It's over 250 pages. It's knocking on 270 pages. This is some amazing st storied career. It's kind of split up into three parts where you talk about your formative years, when you're in the military and and then from there you went on to you know be a be a lawyer and a judge here in, in Vermont and then you travel overseas and work as a legal expert uh through the ULIX? Well that was when I was in Kosovo. Uh before right. Kosovo I did uh uh legal and judicial work in Russia, Kazakhstan and the country of Georgia. Uh, ULEX is the acronym that stands for the European Union Rule of Law Mission in Kosovo, E-U-L-E-X, E-U standing for the European Union, LEX, I believe, is the uh, uh, Latin word for law. Uh, so that's what that, that stands for. But ULEX was my employer in, uh, in Kosovo for two and a half years. Right. And so, so talk to us a bit about that. How, I mean, we get into the career and, and how you kind of got into law. Um, and, but a, a big part of this, a big part of your book is, is talking about your, your work over in Kosovo. Kosovo and Serbia fought a very uh, brutal war back in the late nineties. And it ended when NATO bombed Serbia. 
and some people might recall the name of Slobodan Milosevic. He was a strong man uh, at the time, and he engaged in at what is now called ethnic cleansing. And uh, up to a million uh, Kosovars who are by uh, the, who are Albanian by ethnicity were forced out of the country. But then NATO came in, and uh, the war ended, and all of the uh, all of the Kosovars flooded back to a very different country. The UN then took over control of administering this war-torn country, and as part of their effort to rebuild the legal system, they hired international prosecutors, international investigators, and international judges. Mm. And uh, that went on for a number of years until 2008, when uh, Kosovo unilaterally declared independence from Serbia. And Ulex, my employer, followed the same model of hiring international judges and other legal professionals. And I was one of those. And so I would sit on uh, these high-profile trials, war crimes, judicial corruption, organ trafficking, and the like. Now, getting back to the language, uh, first of all, there are no juries in this legal system. So cases were heard and decided by professional judges like me who came from all over Europe, the United States, and a couple of other countries. Uh, so I would sit on a three-judge panel with someone who might be from Poland on one side of me and from uh, Latvia on the other side of me. And... Uh, all of the trials had to be translated into the working languages. So let's mm. say there was a prosecution against a uh, member of the Kosovo Liberation Army who was Albanian and spoke Albanian. And uh, so uh, when that person testified in Albanian, it would have to be translated into other languages. Now, interestingly, English was the working language of the European Union. So even though most of the countries in the European Union don't speak English as their primary language, the primary language in Kosovo in the trials is English. So if someone was speaking English, another person was speaking Serbian, uh, in the uh, organ trafficking case I did, there were multiple language, they all had to be translated translated maybe once, maybe twice, maybe three times, depending upon the, uh, the composition of the, uh, of the trial. So getting it right was always critical. The, uh, we, we would have interpreters sitting side by side who would, uh, we would say something in English or I would say something in English. The translator would translate it into Albanian. If it also had to be translated into Serbian or Russian, or Polish, there would be translators there to do that. It became a fairly complicated system, and they had to get it right. If you got the words wrong, then it may uh, change the whole meaning of the particular witness's testimony. So yes, language was critically important. Right, and and, and you did bring up that good point on there. Is like how how important language is from a subjective way and also how much language is important to translate it into more of an objective way, especially when you're dealing with witnesses and the like, um, is when you sat on there, because I think you mentioned too, is that when you have a, a, a three-judge panel. Now, 
is it two of them are from a different country, but also, but one of them would be someone that would know more about more of the, the local cultures and laws as well? Well, uh, the, the composition varied, but the, the standard okay. composition of the panel was uh, two international judges like me and one local judge, one Kosovo judge. And the, the reason for that was for us to mentor the local judge in European okay. or American best legal practices. They'd been out of the loop for about a decade. Uh, when Slobodan Milosevic uh, began to clamp down on Kosovo, it was in the early, late 80s, early 90s. And Serbia basically took over Kosovo and all the local institutions were uh, crushed, if you will, and replaced with uh, Serbian institutions. So all the lawyers, all the judges, all the school kids, all the professionals had basically a lost decade. And uh, so when the European Union, or when the UN took over and then the European Union, uh, the judges, the local judges were still trying to get up to speed since they'd basically lost a decade. So right. we would have typically a local judge sitting with us most of them knew the, the local ropes and that was always handy, but we were uh, supposed to be mentoring them and bringing them up to speed. So uh, when the time came, they could take over on their own. And that time has now come. And so you did this after, after basically your, your career of, of working as a judge um, in Vermont. Now, did you, what were some of the things that you, Learn because you had a career already there. You already had a career before you went. What were some of the things that you were able to take back from your experiences? Your twenty was it twenty eight months over in Kosovo. there in Kosovo. Yeah. What were some of the What were some of the things that the experiences that you were able to take back when you came back? Well, talking about the legal system again, uh, right. Kosovo had no juries, and that was common throughout continental Europe. Uh, juries were just not uh, used for the most part. So I had to uh, uh, I had to learn quickly how to preside on cases where I and the other two judges were the decision makers rather than having 12 jurors. And what I learned is that I much prefer the jury system. When you have professional judges sitting out there making decisions, my experience tells me, that those decisions don't carry quite the same uh, amount of public uh, acceptance as a jury of, uh, of your peers, if you will. So I came back, came back feeling much more confident uh, about the jury system. Uh, I, I probably presided over 100 jury trials in Vermont, so I knew that system pretty well. And it was quite an experience to, uh, to uh, sit uh, in, in another system. Uh, you know, it was comparative for me. And my conclusion after sitting on a lot of cases as a professional judge, a three judge panel, my conclusion was, I really like the jury system. I mean, it's not perfect, obviously. Uh, jurors make mistakes uh, and the like, but uh, I think juries uh, are much more apt to be accepted by the public. And that's very important in the judicial system to have the mm. public supporting the decisions that juries make. 
And I think for the most part in this country, that's true. Uh, not always. I mean, there are, you know, you think of the O.J. Simpson case and some other controversial cases where the jury decision was kind of called into question. But for the most part, in my experience, they really do a good job. They take it seriously. Uh, they like the experience. They come away feeling that our justice system uh, is, is very sound. So that was one of the things I took away from my experience there. And you also mentioned too in a previous interview that you pr you love being a judge as compared to being an advocate because you're able to hear both sides of the story. You're able to really dive into the human condition. Um, how would you compare your experiences of of being a judge? I mean, besides the 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 jury piece, not necessarily the system, but uh, the people you met, the people that you interacted with. Uh, as compared to an, an American system, as compared to a system that you were in Kosovo? Well, uh, I had to be a, a quick learner when I went to Kosovo, because again, the system was, was quite different. I right. had to learn how to become the decision maker in the trials, along with two people sitting on either side of me. And, and that was an interesting experience because the people may come from different legal systems. There might be somebody, as I said, from Poland sitting with me on the panel, somebody from Kosovo, uh, uh, name your European country, somebody from Germany, somebody from the UK, uh, somebody from the Baltics, uh, somebody from Portugal. I worked with all of those people. So uh, we always had to, first of all, get to understand each other as we speak. Hmm. Because even though the language was English, there are a lot of different ways to speak English, and uh, you know the the uh, accents were different, and the intonations were different, and the the uh, uh, the quality of the speech was was different. So that was always a challenge, getting mm. so the three of us on the bench could understand each other. We also had to come to an understanding of the of the rules and regulations that we were using in a particular case that might be different from Poland, might be different, certainly different from the US. Uh, but it was fun. It, it mm. was really fun. I made a lot of good uh, friends from different legal systems, different cultures, and, uh, and so forth. And uh, as the decision makers, after we heard the case, we always had to retire to chambers, so to speak, and then hash it out and try to come to uh, come to a unanimous decision. And uh, that oftentimes took hours, if not days, in a complicated case. Then we would have to go back on the bench and announce the uh, decision orally to the defendants and their lawyers and the press and the public that happened to be in the courtroom. And we always had to do that very carefully so that people understood what we were deciding and so forth. So. Uh, a lot of differences, a lot of challenges, but a lot of fun. <laughs> it's just interesting when you when you kind of go in your chambers, as you mentioned. Do you also have like translators in the room there as well, or how did that work? Uh, we would always have translators, yes, and translators yeah. were worth their weight in gold, believe me, because a good translator made our job so much, so much easier. Uh, you know, there were times. Uh, when the translator might not be as fluent in, in English, again, the working language as you would like. And uh, occasionally 
I would have to say, well, you didn't quite get that right. So let me elaborate and make sure everyone stand, understands it carefully. Uh, so yeah, always, always had to stay on your toes. Right. Now, would you, for, for folks that the, for, I would say other, you know, judges or advocates or lawyers that might be either at the beginning of their career, or the middle of their career or near the end of their career, what level would you say is important to go overseas like you did and experience different cultures, legal systems? Has that, does it, how important is that for, for somebody in the legal system? Well, I had already had a career, as you pointed out, right. in, in Vermont. I was, I was on the uh, trial bench for 21 years in Vermont before I did any of the overseas work. So I felt I had a lot of experience. Uh, you know, I dealt with all kinds of cases, murder, sexual assault, fraud, you name it, up and down the, the list. Uh, so I, I felt fairly confident in my own abilities. Some of the other judges I worked with, I would say, came from a different system, perhaps didn't have as much experience as I did, uh, perhaps had more experience than I did. Uh, uh, the Kosovo judges sometimes found themselves uh, adrift because they were not comfortable uh, oftentimes sitting with us on the on the panels, particularly when we were dealing with war crimes. Mm. If a local war hero was one of the defendants for allegedly committing a war crime, the local judges would do just about anything to avoid sitting on that case. Because if we found a, uh, a war hero guilty mm. and the local judge was part of that decision-making, that local judge could actually find himself or herself in, uh, in physical danger. Right. And, uh, so they weren't very keen on, on sitting on those types of cases. Now, so talk to us a bit about that. How complicated is it sitting, being a judge? How much of the way the technical aspects of it as compared to the cultural aspects of the work you were doing? Well, culture always uh, sort of uh, was a, was part of the decision, not part of the legal decision because mm. we had to follow the rule, uh, the rules and, and the facts. But uh, culturally, uh, many of the cases that came before the court were cases involving uh, people from the Kosovo Liberation Army who fought against the Serbians during the war and they were considered war heroes. They were revered in Kosovo society. But just because of the reverence, it didn't mean that they didn't com commit some serious crimes on their side. And there was no, during the UN days and during the ULEX days, there was no free pass for members of the Kosovo Liberation Army, even though they were considered war heroes. So in a couple of cases uh, I heard, uh, you know, their supporters would be packed into the courtroom we would have to have SWAT teams uh, carrying automatic weapons, uh, making sure that uh, there was no uh, no trouble. Uh, the war heroes supporters would be packed out on, on uh, out on the street during the trials and so forth. So that was kind of a cultural overview of a lot of what we did. Uh, and and uh, you know, 
it certainly played into the publicity uh, and uh, it, it did have some effect on me personally. Uh, in one of the cases, I had to go back and forth to the courthouse in an armored vehicle. Hmm. I had to put uh, bomb-proof and bulletproof doors on my apartment. I had to have bars over the windows and so forth. I mean, that was a cultural aspect. That was the overlay of what was taking place in, uh, in these trials. Right. Was that the one with uh, F- Fatimir? Fatimir Limag. Limag, yeah. yeah. He, he yeah. was the lead defendant. He was a extremely popular war hero. Commander but, Steele, right? Is that? Commander, Commander Steele. Uh, yeah. He, he and nine co-defendants were alleged to have uh, committed war crimes at a detention center where they mistreated the Serbian prisoners of war. They mistreated the Albanian collaborators. Uh, They were alleged to have marched uh, a lot of these uh, prisoners of war to an open field where they were murdered and and, uh, and buried in a shallow grave. Uh, And... uh, you know, these were the kinds, and of course, they denied everything. They said, hey, wait a minute, we're not war criminals, we're liberators. We liberated this country from Serbia. Right. So we shouldn't even be standing here. Uh, but uh, the international prosecutors and investigators would uh, investigate these allegations. And if they thought they had proof beyond a reasonable doubt, they would file an indictment and away we would go to the trial. Hmm. Right, and that was the one with you that the witness that ended up getting killed in Germany. The witness in this particular case was a member of the Kosovo Liberation Army, and at this particular detention center where these prisoners of war were held, he kept a secret diary. Mm. I think he had some moral qualms about the way this was uh, way, the way this was cur- occurring about the way the prisoners were treated the way the prisoners were murdered and he kept a secret diary and that diary and this was late 90s late 1990s and everything went fine until the mid 2000s when uh, uh, he began to feel some intimidation from people he, he uh, knew back in the day at the detention center. And he began to believe that people were aware that he had kept the secret diary. So he went to the police, went to the prosecutor. They did a forensic evaluation. His allegations uh, were substantiated. They found the dead bodies in the grave. They found a scythe in the grave that was allegedly used to murder one of the prisoners of war. So there was enough evidence to, uh, to file an indictment. And at that point in time, he was known to be the key prosecution witness. Hmm. And he was placed in the witness protection program because he feared for his life, and uh, I think legitimately so. Uh, but before the trial, two weeks before the trial, he was allowed to go to Germany to visit his brother and he was found hanging dead from a tree in Duisburg, Germany. And uh, it was considered a suicide, but he had been under enormous pressure from the prosecutor to testify in court against these 10 war heroes. 
and his family was also being intimidated. Uh, his wife uh, was absolutely furious at the prosecutor for putting all this pressure on her husband. And he took the easy way out for himself and his family. Uh, rather than mm. going through the agony of the trial, he committed suicide. Right. We then had to decide whether there was enough evidence without his testimony to go forward. And that created another legal circus, so to speak. All the defendants argued vigorously that without him, there was no case. I thought otherwise. I was in a minority on the three-judge panel. Uh, the two judges and the majority decided to dismiss the case. I wrote a dissenting opinion. The prosecutor appealed to the uh, Kosovo Supreme Court, and surprisingly, the Supreme Court adopted the reasoning of my, my, dissented, my dissenting appeal, and the case then proceeded to trial. Uh, so a lot going on, a lot of complexities. Right. Now, is that, uh, has that, has that case been resolved or is that still, is that, is that still happening right now? The case, the Supreme Court in adopted my reasoning, uh, overturned the dismissal of the case and ordered that it be retried. And it was retried before another three judge panel after I returned to the U S and the, uh, the verdict and that retrial was not guilty. Okay. So yeah. that, was, and that, that was the ultimate outcome. Uh, and that was fairly recent. That was 2016 or 2017. Uh, it was a couple of years after, uh, after my case. Uh, and the uh, presiding judge in that case was from the UK. Uh, I knew him. I had some respect for him. Uh, I assumed that he had evaluated the, uh, the facts and the law appropriately and issued a reasonable decision. As it right. turned out, he ended up being the subject of a scandal in ULEX, uh, which is uh, sort of tangential to uh, my book. I, I, I was inclined to include that scandal sort of toward the end of the book. I then communicated with this judge from the UK and he gave me all sorts of reasons why it would be unfair to do so. And I didn't. So that's not part of the book, but it's part of Ulex's uh, history. It's right. still going on. Yeah, it is. And I, what's really interesting is that, as you mentioned to the, the Balkan Insight, you do have, you fairly regularly speaking, you you put out articles through here too, right? Right. Uh, Balkan Insight is an online uh, news site that is broadcast throughout the Balkans. Uh, and I think since about 2000, and I should say I've followed uh, developments in the Balkans very carefully since I've mm. been back in the U.S. And I think I've written maybe about a dozen articles that have been published in uh, Balkan Insight and broadcast throughout the uh, throughout that part of the world. And, and, and so, and, and I think you also put in here like a, a postscript of that's what's happening in Ukraine as well. Correct. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a direct line from NATO bombing in Serbia and Kosovo in 1999 to what's going on in Ukraine right now. Hmm. 
And you call that the Kosovo, the, the Kosovo precedent. The Kosovo precedent. I can explain it if that would be useful. Yeah. Uh, in, in 1999, NATO intervened to stop the humanitarian crisis and they bombed Kosovo, they bombed, uh, they bombed Serbia, they bombed, bombed Serbian sites in Kosovo. The war came to an end in 1999, and Russia, being Serbia's ally, was absolutely furious at NATO's mm -hmm. intervention. And they basically uh, uh, put down an ultimatum. They said, you know, the West is going to regret doing this. And uh, time went on, and when Kosovo declared independence in uh, 2008, Putin was was livid. He mm. said again, uh, "You will, you in the West will learn to regret this. This was uh, contrary to international law. This was done unilaterally by NATO, and you're going to regret it." And uh, no one knew then whether this was just hyperbole and rhetoric or whether he was serious. Well, it turned out he was serious. Because later in 2008, Russia invaded Georgia. Mm. I was there at the time, and part of the justification for Russia's intervention in Georgia was the fact that NATO had done the same thing in Kosovo just earlier that year. And then time passed, and uh, in 2014, Russia again invaded Crimea. And in the Crimean Declaration of Independence, the written Declaration of Independence, Crimea actually refers to the fact that something similar had happened in Kosovo. They refer to the Kosovo precedent. And then fast forward to uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Russia used the same rationale when they uh, declared the independence of uh, two of the uh, uh, Russian-speaking republics in the Donbass region, uh, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk. Uh, one of the first things that happened when Russia invaded was to recognize the independence of those two, uh, those two provenance, provinces of uh, the Donbass region, again, relying on what uh, NATO and the West had done way back in Kosovo. Mm. So... <laughs> So this is so. You're not surprised then, probably, about what's happened over the last several months. Well, I'm surprised at the brutality of it, mm. and I'm surprised at the uh, the rationale uh, that Russia has used. It's not only the Kosovo precedent, but it's the so-called denazification of Ukraine, which really doesn't exist. Uh, mm. And the brutality of it, uh, it was very surprised at that, but very impressed at the uh, the strength and resilience of the resilience of the Ukrainians. Mm. You know, I think this war is ultimately going to end up in a stalemate of some sort. Tens of thousands of people are going to be killed. Uh, who knows what the ultimate uh, negotiated settlement will be? But it's been a, an absolute uh, international disaster. Right, right. Um, so, talk to us a bit about. Um, let's talk about the the the, the techniques of the book. Okay. Now, 
this is something that you've been working on, as we say, for a lot of a lot of years. Uh, very much, as you say, that uh, the the style of this is way different than you know writing any like legal documents. Exactly. Uh, so, so first of all, I wanted to, I want to ask you about how writing a memoir uh, is different for you as compared to writing legal briefs or, or writing uh, uh, legal articles. Well, legal briefs, uh, and I've written a lot, and legal argument, legal articles, I've written a lot. Um, legal writing takes sort of a standardized format, mm. findings of fact and conclusions of law. Uh, and typically it's very uh, dry, may not be the right word, but uh, there aren't a lot of rhetorical flourishes. There's not a lot of flowery languages language you're just trying to explain your decision and how you got there based on your findings of fact and your uh, analysis of the law that applies to those facts it's not meant to be uh, uh, beach reading mm. it's meant to just convey to the litigants uh, how you arrived at your decision and it involves a lot of uh, references to prior legal cases. There are a lot of legal citations in it. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, legal writing that most people would uh, find useful trying to get to sleep at night. Uh, you know, it's a very different style of writing. It's not designed for uh, the average reader. Uh, so I had to get out of my comfort zone. I was very comfortable doing legal writing. I did a lot of it, uh, and I think I was fairly good at it. But when you're writing for a general audience, uh, it's a it's a completely different style of writing, and mm -hmm. I had to adjust to that. And I had to look at all the words I was using, my sentence structure, my paragraph structure, and so forth, to see if I was conveying what I wanted to convey to uh, just a regular person who wasn't versed in uh, in the law. And that took uh, that took some work. Uh, my wife was very helpful in saying, "Look, you've got to you've got to say this differently. You you have to, you know, include some uh, uh, anecdotes. Uh, you have to include uh, different vocabulary." And that took a lot of work. I think my book is readable uh, for the general public. Mm. I certainly hope it is. Uh, I, I really worked hard and. Uh, including a lot of stories, some of which I hope were funny, uh, some of which I hope were interesting that may captivate uh, regular readers' attention and so forth. Uh, there is a lot of discussion about legal trials, but even in that respect, I tried to make the discussion uh, readable to the average uh, person who might pick up the book. I don't know if that's so nice. You know, uh, someone other than uh, I will have to tell me whether uh, I've succeeded or not. I hope I have, but right. I've been getting fairly positive rev reviews from uh, non-legal reviewers. Hmm. So, so talk to us a bit about the, the, the editing process on this. How different is the final product as compared to your first draft? Well, my first draft focused almost exclusively on the international part 
mm. of my career. And when I submitted that to the publisher, Rootstock Publishing, I got a fairly, I got a very favorable uh, uh, response on on that part of it. But the publisher said, you know, you you really ought to have something that leads into this, something mm -hmm. that explains who you are, and how you got there, and uh, and so forth. And, and that sounded reasonable. So I wrote a. Uh, uh, an introduction that was probably six pages long explaining who I was, where I went to school, what I did in the military and, and so forth. And the publisher said, look, this is much too short. You really have to talk about your experiences, uh, not only growing up and where you went to school, but, but as a lawyer and a judge in Vermont. And I said, okay. I took the six pages and expanded it to 50 pages. And I submitted the 50 pages to uh, the publisher and they said, look, we did tell you to elaborate on your Vermont career, but 50 pages is about twice too many. <laughs> cut, it to, cut it back to about 25. <clears throat> right. So I did. And what you have in the book now is about, I don't know, 25 pages or so of my uh, early years, my, uh, a legal and judicial career in Vermont and, and so forth. So how did you, so the, the process, so as you, you mentioned before we went on the air that you, this is a, a good example of a COVID book. Like you really were able to kind of sit down and start typing away at it while you were during lockdown. But how much of that first draft did you already kind of have written out pre-COVID? Uh I had a fair amount of it written out pre-COVID, but it's gone through multiple iterations, as I su mm. suppose most books do. I added a lot. I subtracted a lot. I put in a lot of anecdotes, interesting stories. I took out some of the legal stuff. Uh, I didn't include all of the cases I dealt with. I had to decide which ones I thought were most interesting for the average person. So it really did go through uh, a lot of different rewrites. And uh, I also had to decide on the structure. Did I want to do it chronologically or did I want to uh, deal with some of the more interesting things up front, even though they weren't chronological? And if I did that, how, did, how did, would I explain how I got to that at the beginning when it really came at the end chronologically? These are a lot of structural issues I had to grapple with, with the help of uh, uh, the editorial staff at the public publishers. And we basically uh, decided on a chronological uh, sequence of events. And, and I was most comfortable with that. That's sort of the way I think. And it allowed me to go through early years, uh, what I did before coming to Vermont, then what, what I did in Vermont chronologically and so forth, and seemed to fit. Mm. And and was that one of the was that one of the advices that like your, your wife gave you or an editor gave you, or is that something you kind of had that realization on your own? That was always a one of the way I wanted to do it. My wife, who was okay. a, sir, a, a superb editor and grammar, grammarian, she loves <laughs> sentence structure and she loves to write and so forth. She had kind of a different take on it. And I tried to adapt her recommendations. And for me, they never really worked out. Uh, so uh, 
and I think the publisher was happy with with my chronological uh, way to do it, and that's the way it ended up for for better or for worse. Hmm. Was there any stories in there that you really wanted to tell, but it just couldn't fit? I have multiple stories that uh, <laughs> that are not in the book, and uh, sometimes I regret that. Sometimes I'm comfortable with it. I wanted to be I wanted it to be sort of a mix of uh, perhaps less serious content on the one hand, and then more serious content on the other. And I tried to put the anecdotes in where they fit. I might tell a uh, uh, I might describe a murder case and then have an anecdote following that that's interesting and maybe funny and then get back to something that's more serious. Mm. And that's the way it came out. Right. Um, is there uh, any plans on trying to make a sequel of all the stories that you couldn't fit in? I thought about it. Uh, uh, I'm working hard on this on this book and I haven't really spent enough time yet trying to figure out if there's any future in this uh, second career or, or not. Uh, I'm pretty happy with the way the book came out. I'm spending a lot of time uh, trying to promote it. It's an area of uh, publishing that I am totally unfamiliar with. <laughs> in fact, the whole publishing process was something I was totally unfamiliar with. And, and that was a real learning curve for me. Right. Uh, but I'm I'm doing what I can to get uh, word out about the book, uh, doing uh, podcasts, and I really appreciate your taking the time to spend it with me. Uh, and, uh, you know, book talks, uh, book reviews, that apparently is a big part of this. Uh, I've gotten a couple of reviews under my belt, and I've been actually pretty happy with the way it's the way that's turned out. I'm, I'm a first author. I was uh, I was a novice at this. <laughs> and I can now hold the product up and say, I did this and I think right. it came out pretty well. <laughs> right. So what would be your advice for, for that have a book, they write a draft, but they're still kind of hesitant or scared to actually take the plunge? Yeah, the plunge is, uh, is, is really intimidating. Uh, and if I were to give uh, other fledgling authors some advice, I would, I would say get advice and help from people that have been there before. Mm. Uh, I tried to do a lot of this on my own, and uh, I think if I were doing it again, I would start much earlier getting advice from people who uh, have been through the mill. Uh, mine is a nonfiction book, so I would look to people who have done uh, nonfiction, perhaps in this particular genre of uh, memoir and something that avoids, uh, involves both local content and international content. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I, I did solicit advice from a couple of people who have, who have done the same thing, and that's, that's been healthy. But uh, so getting advice from fellow authors who have uh, who have run this gamut before would be uh, my strong recommendation. Also try to get a publisher who understands what you're trying to convey. My book was a nonfiction book and uh, it involved a lot of content that local people weren't really uh, comfortable with. I had to get mm -hmm. an editor in Kosovo 
at some point during the uh, the, the uh, editing process. Uh, but the publishers, at least in my experience, were very helpful. They were, I think, committed to this project. They wanted to come out, wanted it to come out right, and they gave me a lot of good advice. Uh, and finding a publisher is not all that easy. In my case, it almost dropped in my lap. Okay. Um, I, I can tell that story. Uh, I don't know if you know uh, a man named Bill Mayers, who's a Vermont author. Uh, who writes a lot of humor. Yeah. He had developed a relationship with Rootstock Publishing, and Bill and I and our wives were having dinner one time a year and a half ago or so, and I was talking to him about my my uh, uh, memoir and the, the, the draft of it. He said, well, send me a draft. Let me take a look at it, and if I think it might be of interest to Rootstock, I'll forward it to them and try to connect you and, and that happened, and uh, and we made a good connection fairly early on. And if that hadn't happened, I have no idea how I would have found a publisher. I, I suppose I would have submitted the manuscript to, you know, I'd go online, find out who publishers are of this type of genre, uh, send a manuscript, expect to be rejected, expect to be rejected. And uh, it maybe never would have come to fruition. So I was very mm. lucky in uh, being able to make that uh, that contact early on in the process. Mm. So finding a publisher would be, uh, you know, uh, extremely important part of this process. And and do it do it through uh, networking and outreach and contact other authors, find out uh, how they found a publisher, what the publisher was interested in, in terms of uh, the type of book they wanted to work with and so forth. Uh, so there are a lot of steps in the process and it's, it's intimidating. It was very uh, uh, scary to me. You know, mm -hmm. I have a fair amount of self-confidence, so I was willing to, you know, uh, plod along until I got where I wanted to be, but uh, you have to be, uh, you have to be willing to accept rejections and uh, rewrites and uh, negative comments and so forth. It's uh, it's a it's a difficult process. Yeah, you gotta have some thick skin on that. Yeah, yeah, thick skin is a way to put it. All right. Well, th thank you so much, Dean. Your so as we say, your your book out, A Judge's Odyssey, is available now in bookstores. Shop local if you have an opportunity. You can order it from your local bookstore, no matter where you're hearing this from. Um, yes. But as you say, it's from it's from Rootstock Publishing. You can go on their their website, rootstockpublishing.com, uh, and they can order the book through there as well. And, and just about any uh, bookseller can do the same. I've I've gone on the websites of many booksellers. Some I've contacted personally and and tried to make a connection with them to get them to carry the book. Uh, many of them have done that. But you can go on just about any bookseller, type in the name of the book or type in my name. It comes up on their website, and uh, it's very easy to order the book. Uh, and I encourage you to do that. I think, uh, I think you'd have fun reading it. Right. Well, thank you very much, Dean. And also, you're... That you donate a hundred percent of 
your net profits to the International Domestic Refugee Relief Organizations? Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's something I, I, I really wanted to make clear. This is not a profit-making operation from my point of view. Uh, from fairly early on, well, I'll tell you what, why I decided to do this. Uh, during the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, there were tens of thousands of refugees, in, including a lot of children. And I decided uh, if I ever make any money from this book, I want to donate it to these international relief organizations. A prominent one is Save the Children. Yeah. If you go on uh, the Charity Navigator, you find that it's uh, extremely well-respected. Another one is the International uh, uh, Red Cross. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I got motivated as a result of uh, Russia invading Ukraine to uh, donate all of the profits to uh, wow. th these types of organizations. Right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dean, for coming on. And uh, l listen, you have to come back on when you write your, when you write your sequel book. Then. Okay. <laughs> I'll do that. And I enjoyed our <laughs> conversation. All right. Thank you. Okay, Bonnie. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. So nice. We're we have, we're we're at the end of the meteorology. Oh, geez, Louise! I'm gonna have to edit this part out. <laughs> See, the good news is, you know, I can edit out this afterwards, so it makes it seem much smoother afterwards. But um, so so, Dean, here we are as as of this recording. It is the beginning of September. Nights are kind of getting a little bit cooler, and this is the perfect time of year. If somebody wants. To